Welcome to More Than Movies. I'm Ivana. And I'm Jay. Today we dive into the best of the bad guys. Plus, we talk tech and 20th century women. It's time for a top three turf war. Ivana, we got a really crazy top three turf war for you today. This is one that I didn't see coming, but we're celebrating the upcoming release of Cruella and all of Disney's like reimagined bad guys. Yeah. So I have to admit, uh, I have not liked any of the Disney reimaginings that that have come out so far, like the live action remakes. But I've never seen Maleficent and I've heard that that's a good one. And so it made me think about Cruella with Emma Stone. Emma Stone is generally a really good actor. She picks good projects. So maybe this one is not going to be bad. I, I genuinely don't know. This is the like second time round for a remake of 101 Dalmatians. And I am, I think that based on the trailer, the trailer alone, I don't know if I can stomach this film, but I will wait for the reviews. If they're great, I will be the first one to rent it on Disney+. Plus. I'll make the investment. I just, I can't imagine they're going to be awesome. I, there's not even a dog in the trailer, Ivana. It did get me thinking about, like, reboots where, you know, a new actor takes this, like, you know, a big role, you know what I mean? Like, and they take it over and sometimes they do a better when it's in a reboot. Absolutely. And so I thought, what if we made a list where the reboots did it better? And like, who are the better villains? We also came to the agreement that like, we're probably not going to top Heath Ledger as the Joker. We both do not love the Jared Leto reboot after the Joker. Nope. Yep, I agree. We both believe that Heath's version of the Joker is like the best version of the Joker. Yes, I think that that is like definite fact. So on this list, we are not trying to dethrone Mr. Ledger. So consider him like at the top of the list of the villains. Right. So we're going to do the like next three below him. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and at the end, we got a ton of honorable mentions coming our way. So I, at least for me, I know you had a hard time with this. I had a really, really hard time with this. Yeah. Well, okay. Then I'm going to let you start and you tell me what is your number three? My number three is Catwoman played by Michelle Pfeiffer in Bat the Batman in Batman Returns 90 yeah 89 or 9 yeah 91 91 Yeah that sounds about right that sounds about right now who did she replace So the original Catwoman was played by a woman named Lee Merriweather who was in the 1966 Batman Okay yeah I love it I love it And I I would argue that of all the Catwomans to come after her she is still the iconic the best of all the Catwoman. I am not going to argue that. There is no way that Halle Berry or Anne Hathaway did Catwoman better than Michelle Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer just just sunk into that role and really like created something that was quite lovely to watch on, on screen. I think that uh, the realistic world that Anne Hathaway found herself in, you know, that made it her give a certain type of performance, which of course is not going to, you know, take away the throne from, from Michelle Pfeiffer and Halle Berry's Catwoman, you know, nobody really likes that movie. And so I don't (laughs) even know that, like, I feel like sorry for Halle Berry because I don't think it's her. I think it's the movie. It is the movie. It is. She is an Oscar winning performer. She tried really hard to do what her director said. And and I just think part of it, too, was the sh- shitty costume choice. And again, this has nothing to do with Halle Berry or her performance. But, like, you don't need to make Catwoman both in skin-tight leather and basically 
naked like at the same time you don't need both like you don't you know it's sexy enough when it's just a super tight cat suit you don't need to make it sexier i totally <laughs> agree with you i am on board with that i love it i'm i'm so surprised that you had such a hard time with your list seeing as this is kind of the idea that you had you came up with this idea i figured you had some I know. in mind i had nothing in mind except for <laughs> heath ledger <laughs> All right. Well, my number three, I don't know if anybody's seen the original 310 to Yuma, but I can tell you that Russell Crowe's Ben Wade is leaps, miles, bounds more dangerous than the version before it. And I I don't think I've talked about my love for 310 to Yuma, the remake on this podcast, but Russell Crowe makes every scene he's in dangerous. He makes it like inappropriate just by being around Christian Bale's character. When he's around the wife of Christian Bale, like you don't want him in the room. Like there is something about Russell Crowe's Ben Wade in 310 to Yuma that stands ahead, leaps and bounds from the original. And I like I... I've seen both recently. I am here to tell you Russell Crowe delivered a way better villain in 310 to Yuma. All right. Fair enough. I mean, I have th- never seen this movie. I'm not a big Russell Crowe person. Um, now you, you haven't seen the 1957 version for sure, but you like it's James Mangold 2007. No, James Mangold no. who I know you love Ford versus Ferrari. Yeah. But like, I I had not been following him as a director, admittedly, I have to say, until this moment. I do love Logan. Logan's a great movie. N- no, I definitely never watched 310 to Yuma. And like looking at it on IMDb right now, this is not my kind of movie. It is it's your like, kind of movie. I get you're going to enjoy. I know it's a Western. I know it's old timesy. It's Western and old timesy. I'm telling you. It, look, Ivana, <laughs> Ben Foster's in it. And he plays a psychopath. I do love, I love Ben Foster. Okay, maybe I will watch, I'll give it a watch. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, Uh, so that is my number three. What is your number two? My number two, and I've gone back and forth on which position they should each be in. Uh, My number two is Hannibal Lecter, played by Anthony Hopkins in The Silence of the Lambs. Versus Manhunter. Versus Manhunter, played by Brian, uh, 1986, and uh, Hannibal is played by Brian Cox. Okay, can I just say how, like, moved in my heart, I didn't even think about it. I never even, my brain never went to Hannibal Lecter and Manhunter. I'm so glad you went there. Yeah, I'm really happy when I discovered this. Uh, Like, I, I didn't realize... It was actually, I have to hand it to Blake. Blake, thank you very much for discovering this one for me. Um, I didn't realize that, you know, there was another movie out there before. But Anthony Hopkins and as Hannibal Lecter, I mean, that is as iconic as it gets. You know, right up there giving, like right near Heath Heath Ledger, like status, I would say, you know. Yeah, I, look, I, I I agree with everything you're saying. This Hannibal Lecter will be in the final. I can't believe I forgot about it. <laughs> All right, well then, what's your number two? All right, my number two is about to become your number one. You ready? I'm ready. I am going with Brundle Fly from The Fly because I, I like I I I tell you no lies, people. Jeff Goldblum as The Fly is. Him in the role and that film as a whole, what they were able to do with Brundlefly is so far ahead of the 1958 version of The Fly. It changed his relationship with Gina Davis, everything about what makes him tick and makes him become the Brundlefly is so elevated as far as a horror film goes that I can't like. It is so much better than the original. The original, it's like a guy with, you know, a fly head and walking towards with regular hands. We don't get that in the fly. 
from Cronenberg. This is full body horror and mania and Jeff Goldblum's sexiness at its finest. You know what? I love that this is number two on your list. This is my only honorable mention. Oh my God. Is in the number four position for me. So I'm so happy that it made to your list because I, I, I was really sad when it ended up being number four. Oh my God. Okay. Absolutely. Like this is, this is a performance that changes the film entirely by itself. Like I would have thought this would have been your number one if you had thought about it. And I didn't expect you to have thought about it because I don't, I don't know why, but you're always singing to Jeff Goldblum. I should have known. It's, you know, Jeff Goldblum is so good as yeah, the fly in the fly. And I hadn't, I've never seen the original. I probably should at some point, but for sure Cronenberg elevated it. I mean, I don't think that that's even a surprise. Um, I guess it was just that, you know, how iconic is the fly versus the protagonist of Jeff Goldblum? Anyway, I got into my head about like, does he count as the bad guy? <laughs> and and it ended up in, in number four. I'm really happy he's on your list. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Okay. And what is your, now we're going to one. Number one or number two, if Heath is still it, the reigning champion after all this. But what is your number one? So my number one is Tony Montana by Al, with Al Pacino in Scarface, where originally Scarface was a 1932 film with Paul Mooney in the role of Tony. Yeah. Okay. So I've seen both films and yes, like De Palma's Scarface is more, well, it's more of everything. It's like an excess film. Um, Yes. Yeah. And it's iconic too. Like that character of Tony Montana. I mean, how many guys quote that movie uh, still to this day? Too many. So all, so it's like, to me, and he's definitely the bad guy. You know what I mean? Like, he's not a good guy. No. And so I felt like definitely Al Pacino elevated that character. And I don't think with without Al Pacino and his iconic performance, you know, this wouldn't be the character that people still quote to this day. Like, the whole, like, meet my little friend bit, that whole bit that is, like, overdone by everybody that's because of Al Pacino. So that that's why he was my number one. I love it. I, I think it's a great pick. I didn't even, I didn't really even like put two and two together because I don't think it's like the greatest reimagining, but you're right. It deserves that number one spot. It's a huge, re, well, like it's a huge retooling of a story that was like almost said in the thirties and the other said in this like excessive seventies and eighties. And it's great. Yeah. Yeah, and it's also I think just like he he broke the mold. He like Tony Montana was a nothing character in the original. You're right. You're right. I'm good with it. All right, my number one. It might be a cheat, and it's my number one. <laughs> and I feel bad, but I, okay. Hear me out. Hear me out. The thing from another world has a villain who is a vegetable, basically. He's like a man vegetable who can't be killed and storms through doors and catches on fire and whatever. It's a pretty terrible villain. Fast forward, John Carpenter's The Thing is this alien that hides in plain sight. It becomes this film of... of Amazing special effects. You never know where the thing is. Paranoia just like gets to you. The ending of that movie is still so iconic because is one of them the thing or did they survive? We don't get any of that crap in the original The Thing from Another World. I'm sorry. The Thing from Another World has one good stunt and the rest is garbage. This is amazing as the villain. And you get incredible uh, special effects. You get incredible horror. And most importantly, you get a way, way better movie. Like I've watched both of them recently. John Carpenter's The Thing is so much better because of what they did with the creature. I think maybe it's a cheat. Maybe it's not. But the, 
the villain is the alien, and it's way better film. That's an interesting way. You're right. Like, I didn't necessarily stipulate it was, like, the best performance, even though that's definitely how I interpreted it. But The Thing is is a much better villain than the original. That I, I think it counts. And I was just sort of thinking as well, like, what makes the movie better? Like, Hannibal Lecter makes Silence of the Lambs better as a film. Because, yeah, we're looking for Buffalo Bill and Jodie Foster's all good and we don't really know much about Jodie Foster. Then she meets Hannibal Lecter. All of a sudden, the film is so much better. It's so much more exciting, right? So... I don't know. I was just trying to think about all the ways that a villain can influence the rest of the film. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, in that way, I don't know what how I think about Tony Montana in this scenario. Like, where I think Al Pacino is the secret sauce. Yes. Maybe more than the character in the script. Absolutely. 100%. It is him chewing scenery for like two hours and that's that's what we paid for. Yeah. So then, like, is the villain the thing that's really winning in in the in the Al Pacino scenario or the acting? So maybe maybe that puts it down a notch. Yeah, I'm okay with um, that. I'm all right with putting it down a notch. And and Catwoman, I would argue, Catwoman as a villain makes Batman Returns a way better film. Totally. Like, if it was just him and Penguin, it would suck. It would suck. And the fact that she like bridges the gap of like is she a good guy is she a bad guy there's a lot of sexual tension it adds so much to batman returns um so i i think that she she maybe would stay like there i'm gonna still fight for hannibal and and catwoman all right i'm good with hannibal and catwoman staying in are you okay with the thing staying in or do you want brundlefly Ooh. I mean, I'm okay with the thing staying in because I think you're totally right. It's the best villain. I'm okay. Okay, so the thing is in. I want Hannibal in. I missed Hannibal. It's not even in my honorable mentions. Like, I I missed. Yeah, I think that let's let's put Hannibal as number two. And then, yeah, number three is, I guess, either Brundlefly or Catwoman. I'm good with Catwoman because Brundlefly does not start out as a bad guy. And well, that's true. Yeah. And, while and that was Catwoman how I got either, into my head with yeah. it. Catwoman doesn't either, she but also. like it's definitely better than she's more villain-esque. Yeah. And, and she is replacing basically the Batman movies, Adam West. Love and yes, right. Correct. So it's, yeah, a, yeah. it's miles different. Miles different. Yeah. So here's the thing. Here's my only thing about Heath Ledger. Okay. We have four different versions of the Joker. We got Cesar Romero back in the Batman movie that is in Your Catwoman, which is a yep. silly, silly, silly one. Silly then we one, have yeah. Jack Nicholson, who's darker. Still a little fun, but darker. I love his take. It's my second favorite. Then we have uh, Heath Ledger's, which is terrifying. I still, to this day, think it's terrifying. The most real like the most that you could feel out of any of the, the jokers. And then you have, well, let's just move Jared Leto off because Jared Leto's not in our picks. Ugh, so here's yes. my question is Heath Ledger as the Joker. If he had played it like Nicholson, if he had played it like Romero, even would it have elevated the film? Would it have changed the movie or would it have still just been the same film like how has he gone different enough to remain in that number one spot or like the thing that completely transformed our film into something like really watchable what happens is my question i think Heath still gets number one well give me a little give me a little more like okay, why okay. is he here's still why here's why one? because both him and the character that they he created in that version of Dark Knight are like both really integral to the success. So like it's you couldn't do the role the way that like Nicholson or Romero played the role that would make it too farcical and then it wouldn't add any gravity because like actually that version of the Joker that was just so obsessed with chaos and proving that 
chaos is is the unknowable i don't know beautiful just his like a weird obsession with it yeah um that that was in the script so that was like where the movie made the joker a bit different and then heath ledger found a way to portray it like honestly and so i think that's why he still wins i think that's fair the whole time when you were doing it i was just thinking of him clapping in the in the prison and then him hanging his head out the window like yeah i'm with you i am yes 100 percent. heath ledger is still the best reimagined role for a film villain ever so let's count this down but starting at four number four catwoman michelle pfeiffer number three Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs. Number two, The Thing as The Thing (laughs) in The Thing. (laughs) And the number one villain is Heath Ledger as the Joker in The Dark. Boom. I agree. I'm glad we actually talked about it, though, just for a moment. I appreciate it. Are you ready for like a ton of honorable mentions here? Yes, I am ready. Okay. First up, Fiona from a Cinderella story is my runner up honorable mention because Jennifer Coolidge in the movie, a Cinderella story is such a different evil stepmother. She's just dumb, but also like callous and rich. Oh, you know what? That's a really good one. I love this choice. (laughs) Yes. All right. Number my next honorable mention is Dracula from Hotel Transylvania, where they took the Dracula villain and fixed it and moved it around. So he still hates people. He's still evil to people. But now he's got this daughter he's got to look after, and Adam Sandler plays it so really well. I think that is a great reimagining. And from somebody who like hates Dracula. I'm amazed how much I love the Hotel Transylvania Dracula. Oh, now I want to watch this movie. Next up is Maleficent. I think you should watch it. Like, it's it's not great by any stretch, but Angelina Jolie, like, here's the, the reason I didn't put it on. You don't get any backstory on, the, on Maleficent in Sleeping Beauty. So now we just get the backstory. And it's like, sure, we get it. She angry. Sure. But we didn't get that in the original. So it's not like it's totally like a reimagining. We just got the backstory this time. Um, <laughs> all right. This one's going to make you angry. Shere Khan in the Jungle Book. Because in the Jungle Book remake, I'm terrified of Shere Khan. And in the original, he sings a song and has a British fancy accent while he messes with Ka. Yeah, it's a very, there. you're right. But I just, like, it's not like the current Shere Kong in the new version is, like, so iconic. No, no, no. It's scarier, and it's maybe more elevated. I give you that, yeah. for sure. Yeah. But, like, it's still not iconic. They didn't create Shere Khan, like, the version that everyone will always think of for the rest of their days. Yeah, I know, I know. That was actually, I think... That was where I had the most difficulty is like sometimes you're like, yeah, but is that character by that person iconic enough that I even care? Or the original is still better. Yeah, I, I'm with you on this. That's why it's just an honorable mention. Uh, didn't make it into the finals. Venom from Spider-Man 3 and Tom Hardy's Venom. Tom Hardy's Venom is what people remember as Venom now from that Venom movie that came out. Yeah, yeah, that that's true. That's very true. Uh, the Dawn of the Dead Zombies, because now they run. So that's enough character development, and it changes the whole plan of the guys. Uh, Zod from Man of Steel. Sub-Zero from Mortal Kombat, the new Mortal Kombat, because now he's like a full villain. Before, he was just like a guy they fought. Now he's like, killed Scorpion's family. Like, it's, it's on. And my last honorable mention... We all hated him in the series, but Scrappy-Doo as the villain at the end of the Scooby-Doo movie 
Mwah! Chef, chef's kiss. Nobody liked that little bastard, and now he's the villain. <laughs> you know what? I never liked that little bastard. You're right. <laughs> uh, so, Jay, in a few days, you've invited me to participate in a second round of a music quiz show that you put on, which I am pretty stoked for. It's very exciting. I, uh, I've, <laughs> I've come full circle in this lockdown. I'm now back to making my own music trivia, and it's it's a four-minute audio recorded, like, you play it for it's your like friends. It's like a superset, yeah, right? Yeah, it's a superset, and everybody has to write down as many titles that they have. So I've been doing some of that. I, I did two regular music ones, and then I did, get it, get this, a Disney one and a movie score one last night. What? Oh, yeah. This is going to be epic. This is going to be amazing. I I really like it because it's cooperative. Um, I think it's a, a really cool Zoom game. Um, so you play the superset for everybody. Everyone else is joining all on Zoom. And everyone writes down, you know, what they think the song is or the the artist whatever you say we're supposed to write down you're in charge i am in charge and then at the end everyone can like say their guesses and it all goes towards one group score and i think that that's maybe the funnest part of this well and here's the thing like we've been on zoom calls and in front of screens for so long literally you could pick up your phone have be like you don't have to have your face on if you don't want to have your face on and all you're doing is listening to music and writing on a pad of paper. Like, it's an easy, fun thing to do. I almost feel like you should give this a shot in a clubhouse room sometime. I have thought about it, and maybe we'll talk about it. In our next segment. You're plugged in. Mind your manners. This is Tech Ticket. It has been a long time since we've done a tech ticket. I'm going to refresh you real quick on what this is. We take an app and it's a social app usually. And we go over what the etiquette of using that app is. That is right. And this time we're here. I'm so excited to do this segment to talk about Clubhouse, the greatest social media of all time. I love Clubhouse well, so much. Why don't you tell everybody what it is? Because not everybody is on it. Not everybody knows how great it is. So why don't you uh, just walk us through what is Clubhouse? So Clubhouse is an audio only platform where there are a bunch of different clubhouses or rooms, essentially, where you can have different topics and people can jump in and out of those rooms. And they you always start out as an audience member listening in. Um, but you can also schedule rooms and you can also take part in rooms and uh, be a talker in them. These are live, in the moment conversations between different people, almost the way you would have a conversation in a clubhouse. That's exactly it. You're, uh, you're jumping into rooms that have topics that could be like, what's your favorite movie or game night trivia or whatever it may be. And we're going to walk you through a couple of things that you should know etiquette wise once you get yourself on Clubhouse. So if you are a guest and you're not a speaker and you've just stumbled into a room, give a, give a little what we should do, Ivana. Well, I always recommend just taking a few minutes and like listening and seeing like what's going on in this room. So you, because it's like live and in the moment, Usually when you first hop into a room, it will take at least one or two minutes before you kind of figure out what's happening and are, are they on topic? Are they, um, off on a tangent is that what type of room is this? So there's like a few different formats that rooms can, can take, um, some small, smaller rooms tend to be more conversational, larger rooms can have almost more like panel discussions. There's a big thinkers series, which is, um, sort of these kind of famous futurists who work in Silicon Valley, um, having conversations about like 
interesting topics and the whole world can just kind of listen in. Um, and sometimes, I mean, they, there can be all sorts of different formats, but at first you just want to like hold your phone a little, listen, figure out what kind of room you're in. Absolutely. Now, once you hear something that you feel like, oh, you know what? Like I, I can add value to this room. You're going to click the raise your hand and don't be alarmed if like immediately you're not picked because they're doing speaking stuff, those mods. So they may not notice you right away. So stick around for 20 to 30 seconds. And once you get a pop-up that says inviting you to come on stage, you can click that and you are ready to speak. But don't. Yeah, this is very important. When you first get onto that stage, you got to be ready. Like lightning fast reflexes, hit that mute button. <laughs> that button that raised your hand now is your mute button. And you want to be respectful to whatever's going on and not disrespectful to however the conversation is. So you want to quickly mute and wait your turn. With that said, if people are still saying great things and you want to interact with those people, flash your mic a couple of times. That means that you're showing appreciation for what that person is saying. Yeah. Or agreeing with them or just, you know, yeah. Like it's like the, the like button, but in clubhouse. So instead of interrupting them, you just flash your mic on and off. Uh, and that indicates agreement. And sooner or later, somebody's going to get to you and you can now speak. What you shouldn't do is now one monopolize all the time in the world. Keep it brief. And two, really be respectful. You've just been allowed on stage with probably a bunch of strangers. You're going to be a little bit nervous and that's totally normal, but be respectful. Maybe give praise to the person who spoke that, that got you on stage. Like I really want to do uh, talk about what so-and-so said, because I thought that was interesting. And I, I had an opinion, blah, 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 blah. And then once you're done speaking, turn off that mic again. Yeah. It's, it's really all about, Starting Clubhouse really starts with opening your ears and um, getting a feel for what's happening in the room. I, one thing that I've noticed and I love the most is that it's generally positive. I, I never encounter mean people being mean to each other. So, so, so far things seem pretty good. Totally. The last thing at being a guest is if you get that almighty green badge, now you are a moderator of the room. Just because you're a moderator of the room doesn't mean that you should start inviting people to speak or taking over or adding people as mods. Just still say the guest and kind of, you know, take it easy. Wait to hear what somebody wants or expects of you. If they've said, I've made you a mod or whatever, they're just there basically saying they trust you. So don't abuse that trust. True. And for mods, it's pretty important to reset the room pretty often for your audience. Um, people hop in and out and you should kind of keep an eye on your audiences so that when new people come in, you can quickly do a reset for them, maybe remind them of where you are while also not interrupting your speakers. That's right. Resetting your room is really important. If you are also a mod and you're watching these people come in, but remember how we said, like, you're, you're going to want a minute or two. Don't immediately ask someone to speak and invite them up. One, it's a little aggressive. They don't know anything about the room they've just entered. Two, it's, it's kind of like desperate <laughs> is a weird way for me to say it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just let them enjoy the room. Let them stay there for a couple of minutes to hear what's going on. Uh, and you know what, if they, uh, want to come up, they'll raise your hand. You can even say that like, Hey guys, we're not inviting anybody up yet, but you're welcome to raise your hand if you want to come up on stage or, but we'll, we'll respect you and you stay there or whatever. Another thing that's kind of important when you're in the mod position is depending on the format of your room, keeping the flow going so that everyone who's there can either say a little bit about what you're talking about or can hear from the panelists that you've brought on board or um, just so that the audience is able to sort of keep on top of the topics that you're trying to get at. 
as a moderator, you are there to ensure that everyone involved is going to have a good experience. So make sure as a mod that you're making sure that no one is disrespecting anyone. Nobody is being disrespectful to anyone to make anybody feel uncomfortable. And if they are doing that, boot them, boot them back down to the audience. Don't have to kick them out of the room, but Hey, they had their chance. Boot them. I have done that to three individuals who jumped onto my stage once who started like just shouting homophobic and xenophobic things immediately. And I was like, boom, 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 gone. And they tried to get back into my room three times back on stage. No chance. You with that kind of talk, there is no second chance. You're gone. You are a definitive and decisive mod. <laughs> I like it. It's why your rooms flow so nicely. <laughs> and the last thing I will say is make sure to follow people. And if you find that you've uh, become friendly with people, jump into their rooms, see what's going on with them, and uh, and make sure to say hi when you can. Because that'll build great relationships with friends on Clubhouse. So I have a question for you. Do you have you noticed any lingo kind of happening in the Clubhouse world? Lingo. Well, there's like I've got I've got one for go you. For I'm complete. Uncomplete. I'm complete. I don't know what that is. What is that? Uh, I you haven't heard it. No. So I, I've heard a lot of people say that in rooms when they're done talking. Just I'm complete. Like, oh, I've heard like I'm done talking. I think that that's the new link, the cooler way to say I'm done. Talking. I'm complete. I like it. I like it a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I never tell anybody when I'm done talking. I just like turn my mic. Off. I depends on the room. You know, um, I think panel rooms where you have like panelists like kicking in those those rooms are pretty important to say, you know, I'm done. I'm complete. I'm you know, that kind of thing. Any other lingo, like any slang you feel like is coming out of clubhouse? Oh, well we talked a little about this. I was in a room the other day and somebody said, uh, I'm going to, I'm, this is rude to some maybe, but that I'm going to fuck with that. And, oh, and right, was yeah. talking about a show and I was like, wait, what do you mean? And it's like, yeah, I'll fuck with that. And I'm like, when did that, like, explain that? When did this become a good thing? And I guess it was six years ago or something. I have been out of the loop. I don't, I didn't know that was a thing. What I, what I know now is it can still mean bad things, but it, like, I'm going to screw with your head or like, I'm going to, you know, mess around with that thing. Yeah. But it can also mean like, yeah, I, I'm into it. I'm going to give it a try when you're talking about yeah. a movie. So you know what? Like the movie we're going to talk about, I'm going to fuck with that. The emphasis you put on it just like is wrong. <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't know anything. I This is Clubhouse. I don't know. It's Film Freaks. Chatter for the film fan and all of us. This time we watched the 2016 film 20th Century Women starring Annette Benning, And it was recommended from our friend Fran on Clubhouse. It is one of her absolute favorites. This film takes place in the 1970s as a 56-year-old woman named Dorothea raises her teenage son, Jamie, by herself. Realizing that she might not be cut out to teach her son about the world today, she enlists the help of Julie and Abby. Julie being a schoolmate friend of Jamie, and Abby, a punk-loving, cancer-surviving photographer. Together, the true try to teach Jamie about women, gender politics, sex, feminism, and rock music. Not to be left out is William, a mechanic who has been boarding in the same house as Jamie and his mother. And as the story continues, we learn more about each one of these characters and their backstories. But back to Jamie. At the advice of Abby, he decides to tell Julie that he's in love with her. So the two head down to the coast to a motel. There we realize that Julie won't have sex with Jamie. Dorothea shows up the next morning to the motel to find her son sitting under a tree. Finally ready to open up to him, the two stay behind and realize they were always going to be okay, just the two of them together. So Ivana, we didn't get into it thoroughly in this, but we will. So overall, what are your thoughts on this film? It was really good. 
it, it was really surprising. It was not at all the film that I imagined it would be when I chose not to watch it in 2016. I don't know why I didn't watch this in 2016, but I'm actually glad I didn't. I don't think I would have had the same appreciation. Oh, I, I don't know. I think I think it feels like it was just really great. It was like a really beautiful, interesting character piece. The the it felt really rooted in its time. You know what I mean? Like that the punk movement of that time. It felt real. I also felt like this film is timeless. Like I could put this on in 20 years and still feel like as moved and as collective of the message in 20 years as I did when I watched it. Like here's the thing that I got and I don't know if this is you, but I'm a boy. So this is what I got as a boy. The feeling I had in this film following Jamie is the feeling I have currently all the time about women. And about being the right kind of ally. That is how I feel almost all the time. And I was so shocked that one, this film came out two years before the Me Too movement. And like, here's this guy learning all this stuff about women from women. And he feels like he's, he's sucking it all up. And he's being, he wants to be the best kind of man he can. But at the end of the film, that is, Julie won't have sex with him because Julie's not in love with him. Like, that's the bottom line is Julie is not in love with him. It's funny that, I mean, she's not in love with him, but he was never trying to just get sex out of her. He was always in love with her. Like, he always wanted. He was always in love with he her. He wanted to have both. Yeah. And then finally, at the end, she says to him. You may think you know all this stuff and like you want to know all this stuff about women, but you're still the same as everybody else. Now, I mean, it was in the moment like he did. It may be a little unfair, but at the same time, he was being that guy. He was trying to tell her what she wanted to know and was learning stuff. So, you know, maybe maybe he could be better than the other guys instead of just being you know what I mean I think it's totally valid to be heartbroken when someone doesn't love you back when you're young and it's like a hard pill to swallow yeah like I don't think he was ever he was definitely in love with her and at some point he needed to hear that she was not going to be in love with him absolutely but I don't think that I I don't think that he was being that guy either I think He was just kind of being human. We're all going to be human and we're all going to wish that the people we love, love us back. And we're all going to try different ways to convince them that they should love us. Yeah, he wasn't being a jerk. No, not at all. In the moment, that's what Julie pushed on him because she felt pressure. And yeah, and and he was giving her a bit of pressure, right? Absolutely. They were in a motel. She was half naked. Like it was a sexy situation that they were both in. And And also like she's known, I think this is very important to the scene is that she's known as this girl who is easy, right? Like who has sex with a lot of different guys. And what she's saying is that she can't do that with him, that he's the guy that she cannot have sex with. And, and he's definitely in that moment applying pressure because he's kind of like, well, you're willing to do it with everyone. So why not why me? Why not me? And I've been asking you for this forever. I've been asking you to go away to the, up the coast, spend some time. Like the, he, she knows this is what he wants. She knows this is the fantasy that he has in his mind. But she can't do it. Now, yeah. I want to move past this. Well, and, this and is- it's not fair for him to ask her to do it. And she's like, I, I love that she chose that, that she couldn't do it. But totally. like, I that was the beauty of it, I think. You know, she she called him out that in that moment he was being kind of pressury, and he was. And he kind of is like, oh, shit, yeah, you're right. Like, I don't want to pressure you. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, that whole thing went down in a really 
human way, I, I it was, respect yeah, it. Yeah, I totally respect it. And I want to get off that train because that's not the only thing that's happening in this film. It's certainly not like, it's not even the biggest thing happening in the film. The biggest thing happening in this film is Annette Benning trying so hard to identify or help her son be the best man that like it's so wonderful this mother what she's trying to do and realizing her limitations she's quite great in this and she even gets to explore herself a little bit she sure does which is also awesome like that was yeah it was great it was like she got to be a full human being and and her son got to be a full human being and she realized you know what other people are gonna help me to make him like a really good man and at the end like he is a really good man like that's kind of cool too. I love that. I loved Greta Gerwig in this as Abby. She was I think she might have been my favorite. Because her helping him was also like how can I give you experiences and how can I also like sort of help you with like what you want out of life, which is obviously Julie at that moment in his life and you know, how to talk to girls, how to do all these things, giving him books on <laughs> the, the, my favorite scene was the fight between, uh, between Jamie and the other boy. When he talks about like how he, the other boy probably didn't stimulate the clitoris. And I was like, this is the greatest, like, this is so great, but it also talks to toxic masculinity and, you know, him not growing up around men, so he doesn't really understand those social norms of being around a guy and what you do or don't talk to. I, I don't know if that comes from being... Well, which I th- I think a lot of that really just... That was one of my favorite things about the movie because he he's such a man to me, this young boy who's becoming a man throughout the film. He's always like super man-like, you know what I mean? He's just trying like to be as genuine him. as he can surrounded by these women who are also really trying so hard to make him as better as they think he needs to be, but he doesn't. He's actually pretty good. He's great. Yeah. And, and what's cool about it though, is just showing that you don't need to fall into toxic masculinity to be masculine. Absolutely. I mean, the other, the other fantastic part about this is that his mother, he wants so much for his mother to open up. But his mother's from another time. His mother is, you know, we grew up in the Depression. She was 40 when she had him. She doesn't feel like she fits at 56 in this new radical 70s world with the pop punk. Like, one of my favorite scenes is her trying to understand punk music. And she's like, I, I, yeah. like, I, they know this is bad, right? Yeah, they know it's bad, but that's what makes it great. And she's like, does it? <laughs> <laughs> but she's trying so hard for Jamie and all Jamie wants her to do is open up, which is the one thing Annette Benning won't do. So she thinks they have friction. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely true. I, uh, it, it really is a like a fun, fun movie. I, I honest to God, I love this film. I, I, if it wasn't for Fran on Clubhouse, I probably would have like never really, I probably would have kept skipping it to be honest. I never, I never would have watched this movie ever if it was not from Fran from, and she like, she, oh, it's so there good. Is what so a great, much happening. Great what about suggestion. William? We didn't talk about Billy Crudup in this movie. Who is? Oh, so I loved his character. So interesting. Who's this like commune reject? Because he never felt like he felt old while he was there, but that hippie stuff came with him to the house, so he can't really talk to anybody. Yeah, like he's like permanently. He's like I saw the light with that hip, like the the stuff that the people that the hippies were all about. He was like, yeah, I get it. You're right. Yes. But also, yeah, I do and, not fit in here. Right. And 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 he's feminist in his, but like, and very, very sexy to women. But in a way that like, 
he almost then has a superpower, which is a very interesting aspect to his character. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the backstories to everybody because Billy Crudup's was one of the most important for me because he talks about for whatever reason he wants women to care for him. But after he has sex with them, he doesn't know what to do. And they don't really want to stick around. It's just, that was the thing. Yeah. And I, I have felt that way in my life, in my early twenties. And I just was like, absolutely floored that this, you know, I guess he's 40 in the film, maybe 30 plus. I would have guessed. Yeah. Like forties. I was floored by his backstory and his conversation about that because I, I was like, holy crap, that is so true to me. And then there was Annette Benning's sort of backstory, plus added on the the passage her son read. Again, just trying to reach out and get her thoughts on something that he read, even though it totally comes off as insulting and embarrassing. And but also like it it was revealing without being revealing about a woman who ages. Yeah, totally. Well, it was saying he was saying that he sees that she's living through this and she doesn't want to admit that she's living through this. Right. Like it's hard that moment in that scene and those emotions. And it's that that's one of the best things about this movie is that you can see how so many people come at these these situations in the movie with like the best interest at heart, but they just don't have the capacity to know what's in the best interest for the situation. They just have their own best interests. Another amazing scene, honestly, was Jimmy Carter. Uh, the, oh my gosh, the crisis of confidence speech where everybody in the room who's younger than her is like, oh, his time is up. Oh, he's done. And she's like, I thought that was the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. And the thing is, Blake loves that speech. And it is actually like, if you actually read it, like it's very interesting. It really marks a key point in the evolution of America. I think it's interesting that they chose to keep it in this movie. Especially with... Because I think it's like... How relevant it is? Yeah. Well, and yeah, that's the thing is like, consumerism, is it really worth it in the end? Like... you know, maybe it is better for all of us to actually just like stop for a minute and stop like consuming to the next thing. There's a lot of climate issues and and yet for some reason the allure of, I don't know, capitalism seems to have the world like vying for other things. Capitalism's a bad thing too. I mean, it can be. It can be. It can be also It can good. be good. It's, it's, it's complicated. 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 Like everything else. <laughs> <laughs> but it... It, it was just can a cool I, moment because everybody else who's younger than her saw it totally different than the way she saw it. Yeah. Yeah. Same with the menstruation moment. Everybody's saying menstruation at the table and she cannot deal with this moment. That was a funny moment because that was such a difference of like the different waves of feminism. Feminism grows and involves and changes and and it was cool to be part of whatever wave of feminism we're in right now and to be watching what these 1970s 80s feminists were doing at that time and then like thinking about Annette Benning as the previous generation of feminists I don't know I thought that was a, just a cool interesting way that like people get really used to these things you really took things from this film in a moment totally yes this this film is really well paced, feels like a movie. But, you know, now that we're talking about it, I feel like we're just talking about discombobulated great scenes <laughs> right. that all come together. But like as a viewer, let me tell you, it comes together beautifully. It's not easy to have this many main characters in a film and they did it well. They did it very, very well. Um, Can I just say my one is so unfair. It's such an unfair unfair comment that I regret saying it before I say it. Um, 
But I feel like this was meant to be Timmy, Timothy Chalamet's role. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so Jane, so Lucas Jade Zuman, who's the actor who played Jamie, he did a great job. Super talented actor, not saying anything bad about him, but, uh, the role was clearly written for Timothy Chalamet, I feel like. I feel like it was it was like written with him in their head. And then I guess they couldn't get him. And so they tried to cast like and film someone else to like. Do you know look, this Lucas, for a fact or is this speculation? This is entirely okay, speculation. Just it's just like way too much. Like he looks like Chalamet. But like not, he's a good actor, but every shot I just thought of Chalamet and it like it, to be honest, was the one mistake of this film, I feel like, because knowing that a Chalamet exists, it's impossible to watch someone who looks kind of like him do a role that's like written for Chalamet um, and not think about him. And it has... And it's like not Lucas's fault or his performance's fault. This is so unfair of you. Like, yes, you're I, right. I know. It is, it's complete conjecture and you're just like throwing it out there all willy nilly, fully half cocked. And it's just like, yes, if Timothy Chalamet played the role of Jamie, it would have been so cool to see. But I can't believe <laughs> that... This is the takeaway you have. Well, I just think that I don't know if I like, and again, nothing against Lucas, who I really did think did a fantastic job in this movie, but like, could he have not, could they have styled him to maybe like, I don't know, dye his hair a little or like, the problem was that it was impossible not to think about Chalamet and like, perhaps if Lucas could look less like Chalamet in this role, I wouldn't think about him as much. And then I would just be able to like pay attention to his performance. Well, I had no problem paying attention to Lucas who played Jamie, who I thought Jamie was awesome. Uh, you know, he was such a great little ally, great man in the film. But are you telling me that you never once thought about Sh- well, I am Chalamet now. the like, whole I'm time? Like I'm thinking about it now. I didn't think about it in the film, but I'm thinking about Not it now. Not while you were watching? If it was like Greta Gerwig who directed it, yeah, I'd probably be thinking about it the whole time, but you know, it was Mike uh Mike something or other. Mike uh <laughs> What was his name? Mike, Mike Mills. Mills who also directed Beginners, which I it's another one I love. I love Beginners. Maybe I have to look through this guy's filmography. Thumbsucker, I think, is on this too. Yeah, Thumbsucker, Thumbsucker looks good. What is that? Interesting. I think Hilda Swinton was in that one, no? Tilda Swinton, not Hilda. Hilda, who's Hilda? Uh, but yeah, maybe I should take a look through this guy's catalog. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And I love Beginners. I, I should watch Beginners again. It's been a long time. But I, I give 20th Century Women a four out of five. I think I'm going to come back to this. I, I think I really enjoyed it. I really like this movie and I agree. This is definitely a four out of five film. All right. Boom. All right. Ivana, you and I both absolutely love mythic quest. I sure love that show. Did you know there's a one-off episode that just dropped like before the new season, they just dropped an episode. I did not know this. Okay. I think we watch that next week and we talk about it because I think it's going to be awesome. Here's the deal. If you haven't seen Mythic Quest, it's on Apple TV+. Plus. It's one of the best shows on Apple TV+. Plus. Up there with Ted Lasso. Agreed. You know. Yeah, up there with Ted respect. Lasso. Yeah. Uh, but Mythic Quest is so freaking funny. It's by uh, Rob from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, if you can't remember. And yeah, they just mm-hmm. dropped like a, just a one-off episode. It's just like a fun episode, I think, that will get us excited for the new season. But... Their last one off that they did in pandemic was incredible. Best pandemic episode I've seen. Me too. So I am so excited to see that there's a new episode. Let's watch that next week. Done. All right. Boom. Watch it with us. And if you haven't seen Mythic Quest, it's amazing. There's only like 11 episodes or something and it's the best.
And that's our show. Thanks for listening and be sure to tune in again in two weeks. If you'd like to support the show, hop on to your podcast service and subscribe. And if you're really feeling generous, score us a quick rating or review. Our intro song comes from bensound.com and we encourage you to check out our show notes for more information about our music, our talented voice actors, and our sound effects. Ivana and I love hearing from you, so we built a website where you can reach us, and that's morethemovies.net. And in case you hate websites, we also have email, hello, at morethemovies.net. Find us on Facebook, More Than Movies Podcast. Or catch us on Twitter, I'm at It's Ivana. I'm at Jester J. Thanks again for spending some time with us. We'll be back again in two weeks with an all new episode. And until next time, friends. Do more. And watch more. <laughs>